Welcome to a special episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we speak to the change agents trying to make Tulsa and the world a more resilient and just place. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guest is Sam Singyangwe, a policy analyst and data scientist who co-founded We the Protesters to End Police Violence and Systematic Racism in America, and is a co-host of the popular podcast, Pod Save the People from Crooked Media. He is on the podcast today because he will be the keynote speaker at this year's virtual John Hope Franklin Center for Re- Reconciliation Symposium. His keynote speech will be on Wednesday, May 27th at 6 p.m. and is free and open to the public. To find out more about the virtual symposium or to sign up to attend, go to www.jhfnationalsymposium.org. Sam gives us a preview of his keynote speech. He talks about using data as a tool to reduce police violence and tells us why rice should be crunchy on the bottom. And enjoy our conversation with him. We are very excited to have Sam Sinyangwe on the podcast today, our very special guest from, I'm not even sure where you are currently, Sam. I'm in New York. All right. Yeah. I mean, weather locations matter during the pandemic. I haven't yeah. been outside in a while. It's It's kind of a... An interesting situation. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Chris and I. In a couple of days, you are going to be virtually speaking to to Telsa as, as part of the John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation's 2020 Virtual Symposium. Normally, a thing that would happen together, uh, we are doing virtually because that is the times we live in. You're a policy analyst, you're a data scientist, you're a podcaster. And I noticed that many of your projects, We the Protesters, Project Zero, are very focused on data and equipping people with correct, helpful data to to help hold those in power accountable and to help affect change, and which both Chris and I, as fans of data, love. <laughs> My question is, how do you deal with those who sort of refuse the data, the personal versus the, the data debate? There's no magical solution here. I think there will be, and we just have to acknowledge there are some people who are unwilling to change their minds about issues that that they have a particular worldview about, particularly when we talk about issues like police violence and uh, white supremacy and systematic racism. I mean, it's something that you have a group of people who just will not uh, be willing to even entertain the view that, you know, maybe there are real problems here. Maybe there are real systemic issues here. And maybe the police should actually uh, change the way that they're interacting with communities in order to keep people safe. Now, that is, that is one group of people. What I found though is that because so so much of the work that we do at Campaign Zero and through various other projects has been focused on collecting, analyzing, and using data as a tool uh, to better help communities and policymakers understand the issue of police violence and how it impacts communities, to help identify effective and evidence-based solutions to this issue that can reduce officer-involved shootings, that can reduce other forms of police violence, that can reduce racial disparities in policing, and then to bring people together around the data to hold institutions like police departments and cities accountable uh, to actually making those changes and to getting results, measurable results in terms of reducing police violence. So that's like the work. And what I found is that there are a group of people who are actually quite willing to engage in that work. And it's, it's often surprising. You know, it is not something where where there are just simply, you know, there, we can never convince 
uh, people to, to engage in this. This is actually work that even police chiefs, even policymakers who are quite conservative uh, can be brought around to understanding that there are different ways of doing this, that there are other cities uh, that have made changes that have actually been successful, that haven't resulted in the doomsday scenarios that, that we hear from law enforcement about you know, any type of reform. And that when you can bring that data and you can bring those examples to the table, I think it, it changes the conversation. We start to talk about solutions rather than uh, sort of endless debates around whether or not there is a problem. Well, and it, it seems like that there is sort of a, I don't know if you would call it a new generation of mayors and their support staff, or like you said, even police chiefs and other civil workers that are relying more and more on data just in general. So are, is, are you finding that there are more people that are receptive because they're already receptive to using data to help them run their cities and states? So, yes. And it goes both ways. So in some cases, we have seen cities that have collected a substantial amount of data, even states. So I think about California, where because of the work of organizers and policymakers there, they passed a, several different laws that require poli every police department in the state to report data on every single stop that they make, both pedestrian and traffic stops, uh, every action that they take during those stops, you know, whether they search somebody, what the demographics were of the people that were searched, whether they used force, what type of force was used, whether they made an arrest. So literally everything that the police do is required to be reported in California now. And because of those mandates, police departments have begun collecting data on a vast amount of data that they just weren't collecting before. Uh, and so now that's an opportunity where we can come to the table like we did in uh, San Diego, for example, and for the first time actually analyze that new data that's being reported and sharing, you know, what does it actually say? Like your officers have been out every single day reporting and collecting this data, uh, but have never actually had a chance to see what the trends were. Uh, what does the data, what's the story behind the data around how police are interacting with communities and what they should be doing differently. And that's sort of the, the service that we provide is being able to analyze that data, being able to work with community organizers and policymakers to better understand what the key issues are and how to address them. And I think that, that there is a, a higher willingness to engage in those places because because of laws that have been changed over the past five years that have actually required police to even begin collecting this data that just simply wasn't available before. Well, and that brings up something that's probably fascinating to me, and I don't know how many other people, but I deal with data a lot in my day-to-day -day job as well. And one of the hardest things is when you want to analyze something, but the data either doesn't exist or you can't, frankly, get access to it. So how do you go about trying to get the most complete picture of data that you can so that your analysis can be as you know, robust as possible? It's a particularly challenging question around the issue of policing because there is no nationwide database of police use of force. There's no nationwide database of police accountability or misconduct complaints and what happens if you report misconduct in terms of discipline. There is no database, national database for police stops and searches. So there are a whole range of issues that the federal government has just not stepped up and effectively found a way to monitor and collect and report on a nationwide scale. So there's a lot of information that we just simply can't get because it's not being collected. Now, 
That being said, there are a range of indicators that we actually can collect data on. And part of this is actually doing things that the federal government has refused to do and figuring out a way uh, to obtain the data that they have not. So one of those examples is, is data on people who've been killed by police. So the federal database on people who've been killed by police, so the FBI collects data on this, the CDC collects data on this, their database, according to the best research estimates, it only contains about one third of the total number of people who've been killed by police in the United States. Why is their database so bad? Well, it's because they rely on uh, each individual police agency. There are 18,000 different police departments across the country. Uh, They rely on each one to report this data every single year reliably uh, and accurately uh, with no oversight, with no accountability measures, no penalties if the data is not reported. And so at the end of the day, you have a situation where a huge number of police departments just simply don't report the data. No police department in Florida reports the data to the federal government on people killed by police, for example. Doesn't mean nobody's being killed by police in Florida. It just means it's not being reported. So the way that we get around this, the way that we collect the data is by figuring out where would this data be housed? Well, first, it is often in local media reports. So when somebody's killed by police, it is often reported in the local media somewhere. It is a homicide. It is a major story, particularly in, you know, in cities that have some sort of media apparatus to report these things. Uh, and so we collect data through local media reports. We collect data through directly from agencies, through public records requests. We collect data from other criminal justice databases that can help us fill in the gaps. So if a media report doesn't mention, let's say, the race of the person who was killed by the police, then we can find that data often through another criminal justice database or from social media or from obituaries. So there are a range of different databases that we pull together uh, to build the most comprehensive set of people killed by police in the country. And then it's important to acknowledge that there were other folks doing this work to varying degrees before as well. So there's Fatal Encounters, which has been collecting this through local media reports for a while, but they didn't have information on, for example, whether the person killed by police was armed or unarmed. So we helped fill in that information from media reports, from police department databases, from information from communities and community organizations. So, So it's a massive effort, but ultimately, according to best research estimates, we actually collect data and have data now on more than 95% of the total number of people killed by police in this country, going all the way back from 2013 through 2019. And so that's that's huge. That means that we essentially built what the federal government failed to do, uh, which is a, a nationwide database of people killed by police. And we're not the only ones. Since we launched our data platform, Mapping Police Violence, the Washington Post launched their database uh, called Fatal Force. We've seen the Guardian launched a database for a couple of years called The Counted. So so this is a methodology now that has been that has become sort of an industry wide best practice, where now the data that that we you know previous to 2014 and 15. You know, organizers were demanding the federal government do this. The federal government still has not done it to this day. And so we had to find a way to collect it going, even even if they were not going to. So that's sort of an example of one indicator where we're able to collect data, even though the federal government isn't doing it. And then for others, you know, it is sort of a patchwork. So we get the data from public records requests to police agencies. Some agencies give us the data. Some agencies don't even collect the data. And so they tell us we don't have the data because literally there have been police departments, pretty large police departments that have been like, well, we actually don't know how many people uh, we used tasers against last year. We just didn't collect that data. So that is like a real issue. But because there are so many police departments across the country, we can still get uh, good data from enough of those departments to begin doing the types of analyses to help figure out what what types of solutions should be implemented. Well, that that brings me 
back to the symposium in, in a sense, because, you know, this year's theme is reconciliation and technology, neutral resources for social good. And I remember we were debating that phrasing because I was like, when we're talking about reconciliation and race relations in America, can we really say that technology is a neutral resource? Because, you know, I view technology as tools and people people can misuse tools. On the other hand, technology and data, right, are are held by by those in power. So do you think that technology itself is a neutral tool? So, you know, I, I think that these tools can be used for good or they can be used to create harm, right? And I think we're seeing that in real time in our society writ large. So things like, I'll give you an example uh, for one technology, digital ad targeting. Now we've seen an explosion in Facebook ads, Instagram ads that are hyper-targeted using all kinds of information on user behavior, user profiles to reach people with ads that are relevant to them. We also saw in the 2016 election how that technology was weaponized to share misinformation, to change electoral outcomes. And, and so, so that, that caused incredible harm. And on the other hand, that same technology we've been able to use to target digital ads in Florida that can reach people who have a previous felony conviction and restore their right to vote, to inform them that actually because of the work that the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition there did to uh, make it possible for folks who have a previous felony conviction to vote, now we can actually get folks registered right away online through digital ad micro-targeting uh, that takes into account all of those user, user characteristics to hyper-target ads towards people who uh, are eligible to have their voting rights restored. So that is the same technology, the same platforms that have caused all that harm in society being used to actually expand access to the franchise for predominantly black and brown folks who uh, otherwise may never have known that their rights were restored. So that's one example. There are plenty of other examples. We can talk about predictive policing, which is a technology that has caused tremendous harm that you know, in, in many jurisdictions across the country, you have data that is being used to reinforce existing biased practices in policing. So they, they take crime data that is itself biased because crime data is not a reflection of where crimes actually occur. It is a reflection of where crimes are reported and where police mm -hmm. observe crimes, which means that if police are predominantly in black and brown areas, they're more likely to observe crimes in black and brown areas just because that's where they are. Therefore, that data gets fed into the algorithm. The algorithm outputs, well, these are the neighborhoods where crime is more likely to be observed, so we should send more officers there. And then it actually reinforces those existing biases and disparities in policing. Now, on the other hand, we can use police data on police misconduct, on police use of force to actually predict police misconduct. So we're talking about the same algorithms, the same processes, a different data set. And resulting in a very different outcome where now we can actually use the data to prevent police shootings, to identify where are the blocks, where are the neighborhoods in which police are most likely to use force, where are the situations in which they're most likely to use force, uh, and then remove those officers from those from the force or remove them from those deployments, intervene with disciplinary measures, and prevent those officers from actually escalating to using deadly force. So, so you know, same technologies. Uh, it is... Not necessarily neutral, but it can be used for good just as much it is, as it is being used for harm in many places. So I think that the key is how do we take these technologies? And in many ways, this is like an arms race, right? I mean, you know, you have a lot of nefarious actors out there that are using these technologies to cause real harm, and that isn't stopping. The question is, can we use these same technologies in this arms race to, in a countervailing way, to actually promote equity and justice? And I think we have to. I don't think we can leave these tools on the table and just 
just sort of keep doing, you know, keep using 20th century technologies while our, you know, folks who are causing harm are using 21st century technologies. I'm curious about what you know about the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, because there's an in, there's an interesting data component as of recently, which is trying to figure out how many people were killed, and you know the using science to find out where possible mass graves are, and whether and people debating whether that information matters in the long run of how how a city deals with the fact that they hit a massacre for a hundred years, and you know destroyed the most vibrant black community in America at the time. Tulsa is also dealing with recent police violence issues. And so as you've been, one, I'm curious about what you already know about the Tulsa race massacre. And two, how do you, when you're talking about something that happened almost a hundred years ago, where there isn't a lot of data and a lot of the data from the time has been lost. I'm doing air quotes for our our viewers who can't see when you're dealing with something like this, where the the data is never going to be complete, what do you do in those situations? So that's a really great question. You know, to answer your question, I have studied the Tulsa race massacre. You know, I am always sort of fascinated by this time period in which, you know, in the early 1900s, you had so many different instances of sort of mass white supremacist violence all across the country. And in many ways, you know, that historical period is so important to understand because uh, there are echoes of that period to what we're seeing today with sort of a rise in white supremacist violence across the country that we've seen, you know, over the past several years. It is a it is a hard question. Like I'm not the expert on how to collect data from 100 years ago. The data that we collect tends to go back around about to 2013 is about as early as we can go back. In some cases, maybe 2010. The reason for that is because digital records prior to that are just not as comprehensive as the information that is being shared online today. So, like even you know counts of how many people were killed by the police, you know, in 2010, that's actually kind of hard to compile because we rely so heavily on local media reports that are posted online in many cases. Uh, like we find them online through a system of Google alerts, looking for keywords like officer-involved shooting or police shooting uh, or uh, police-involved killing. And many of those reports just simply were not posted online. They were not reported online in 2000 or 1990, right? And so going back using the methodologies that we have, we're actually quite limited in how far we can go back. And so going back a hundred years, you know, as you can imagine, is going to be even more challenging, you know, by far. So, so it is a huge question. I, it's always important to collect as much information as possible. One, to bear witness to what happened, to make sure that we have an accurate historical account of how much damage was caused of how many people's lives were impacted by this. And then also for for reconciliation and reparations to better understand what the scale of, of reparative work needs to be done. How what, what is the scale of resources that needs to be reinvested in communities as reparations for what happened? Who needs to be paying the, those reparations? Who should be receiving those reparations? All of those are questions that we need to have a better picture of what happened so that we can make sure that, that the distribution 
distribution of that is as accurate and as comprehensive as possible. So, so it is very important to have the data. I'm definitely no expert on how to collect data from 1900, <laughs> from the early 1900s, like 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. Like that period is very, very difficult. I mean, there are historians that that study this for a long, long time, and even then, it's it's challenging to get this information. So, so I think hats off to them and their work. But ultimately, I think the importance of this data cannot be understated. And earlier, Jesse brought up the point of the, you know, sort of the the data versus the personal. How do you combine kind of the storytelling with the data and technology to, you know, reach as many people as possible so that you can reach those people that maybe aren't as focused on data specifically, but you can st- but still use that data to help support your story? In many cases, what we have played the role in this broader conversation about policing and, and and the intersection between policing and race, we have played the role of putting out the data and showing how widespread these issues are and helping to use the data from a quantitative perspective to identify and advance solutions. But we're not the only people in the space, right? There are folks all across the country who have emerged, particularly since 2014 and 15, and engaged in advocacy and activism work around justice and equity, particularly with a focus on policing and police violence. And a lot of that work, most of that work, I mean, almost all of that work is focused on on storytelling, on focus on particular cases, particular injustices, particular people who have uh, been killed or harmed by the police who need justice. And so I don't think that there is an absence or a, a dearth of stories. I think in many cases, we have more stories now than many of us can even remember, right? It, there are, I mean, we remember Mike Brown, we remember Freddie Gray, we remember Tamir Rice. We remember Trayvon Martin. We remember Walter Scott. I mean, we remember Sandra Bland. We remember Rakia Boyd. There are so many cases. Just now, I mean, over the past couple of weeks, we have learned new names, right? We have learned about Breonna Taylor. We have learned about Maude Arbery in Georgia. And so... I think the storytelling piece of this is happening. The videos, the evidence of the injustice is prolific. It is viral, right? I mean, uh, most people by now must have seen, I mean, several, several videos of of what of what is happening, right, in communities with regard to police violence. I think that what was missing from the equation in large part is an analysis that takes the data on this and helps understand how widespread is this? It is beyond the three or four or five or 10 stories or names or videos that most people can remember that this is actually something where there are 1,200 people killed by police every single year in this country. There are, I mean, that's between three and four people every single day. There are the scale of this, there are about 4,000 people shot by police, uh, both fatally and non-fatally every single year. There are about 100,000 people who are hospitalized or otherwise harmed by police use of force every single year in this country. So it's just a, a huge scale, way beyond what I think what we would even be able to do through effective storytelling. And so uh, part of this is making sure that we're able to hold down the quantitative side of this, the data side of this, because some people are responsive to stories and are responsive to the qualitative side of this. We'll get in this work because they identify with somebody or believe that there should be justice in a particular case that they've been touched by, that they've been affected by, that they've seen. And other people will respond to the numbers, will respond to the data. And so we want to make sure that that data is accessible and prolific and available to folks uh, so that those who would be convinced by it can be convinced by it and can get into this work as well. You know, when you're talking about 
police violence, specifically the case of Ahmed Arbery was were civilians. And so I wonder if if there is a correlation between areas where there is police violence, does there become a greater percentage of violence of civilians as well on on African Americans and others? It's just it seems like with not just the proliferation of police violence we've seen, but that it is be- being reported so much more. For some people, is it emboldening them to think, well, well, we can do this as well? So that's a great question. I haven't seen haven't seen any research that has shown how closely correlated those two sort of strains of violence are. I wouldn't be surprised if they are very closely correlated. And you know, just to go back to this particular case with Ahmad Arbery, you know, one of the the two guys who killed Ahmad was actually a former police officer. It's he true. worked in the district attorney's office. He was in law enforcement currently, and he was a police officer before that. And so, you know, that is something where. I I don't doubt that that played a role in mm-hmm. in his behavior, in his sort of willingness to chase somebody down and sort of play the role of a police officer in enforcing something that was not a crime, that was clearly a, a reflection of uh, bias and uh, white supremacist thinking around like, why is this black person in this white area or walking around this area uh, or looking at this construction site where many people had done that and not been chased down by somebody who was formerly or currently in law enforcement. So so I, I think it is related. But th- that being said, there are many other folks who have not been in law enforcement that have been have committed sort of white supremacist violence. You, we saw, you know, Dylan Roof is one of the most high profile examples mm-hmm. of that. But but I, you know, again, I think these are both strains of the same thing, right? These are both types of violence uh, that are in many cases state sanctioned, that in many cases do not result in accountability or the same level of accountability as we would see in cases where this was not a murder of a black person by a white person who, you know, was who believed that that being black was a threat justifying some type of violence. So so again, I think there's a lot more we do need to learn about hate crimes and white supremacist violence. One of the one of the challenges just from a uh, methodological point of view for that is that in many cases hate crimes are not reported as such. So you look at the the federal database on hate crimes, and it is no better than the federal database on people who've been killed by the police. So you look at a state like Alabama, zero hate crimes have been reported in the state of Alabama according to the federal database. Huh. And like anybody who knows anything about American history or the state of Alabama would know mm-hmm. that that is almost certainly untrue. And yet that is what the federal data says, right? And in many cases police departments are not classifying things as hate crimes that could be classified as hate crimes. They're not reporting things that may that they may internally classify as hate crimes as hate crimes. Uh, folks may be, there may be a hate crime where folks are not charged uh, you know, under a hate crime statute. In some places, there is no hate crime statute. I, think, I believe Georgia is one of those places. So, so again, like the, the, the landscape for collecting and reporting the data on this is so incomplete um, that it is very difficult in many cases to even conduct the type of analysis uh, that you're talking about. That being said, I mean, just because it is difficult doesn't mean it can't be done. And I think in many cases, it is up to data scientists and activists across the country to figure out a way to, to collect and interpret the data that is available and to actually shed some light on the connections between these issues. 
Well, and and speaking of some of the issues with data and reporting, uh, we're living in a time where it seems like everyone is sort of becoming a data scientist when it comes to looking at, you know, the stats related to COVID-19 and, you know, the issues between, you know, different states and the federal government related to what gets reported. Specifically in Oklahoma, early on, there was an issue where all of the third-party testers were only reporting positive cases. They weren't reporting how many people were tested, right? And so it became early on very, very difficult to tell actually how many people were were involved, right? So I'm curious your thoughts around what you've seen kind of either governmental approach or individual's approach to kind of this data related to this pandemic and how the how the federal government as well has kind of what they have done or not done that's sort of led to this sort of in, inconsistent reporting. Yeah, so I, I believe you know the, the current crisis is a great example of what happens when the federal government lags behind or doesn't do its job fast enough at collecting. It, well, first of all, at testing people, which is like step one, um, but then even collecting and reporting the data on those tests uh, and on you know the prevalence and spread of coronavirus throughout the country, and in that gap. You know, in that vacuum, we've seen you know data scientists, citizen journalists, and a, a range of different folks, universities in some cases like Johns Hopkins, fill that void by building their own databases and not only sort of collecting the data, but reporting it in ways that can add value to the national conversation about what is happening, about what needs to happen to address the crisis. And that in many ways mirrors what we saw in 2014 and 15 in the work that that we were involved in filling this void of information and data around police violence when the federal government failed there. So so I think this is sort of a a similar progression of everyday folks and folks who have uh, an understanding that data can is an important and necessary tool for crafting policy uh, and crafting solutions sort of step up and uh, fill the void that the federal government it had created to actually add value to this conversation. Now, again, like there are so many different methodological and other issues with the coronavirus data, as well as understanding how that data breaks down by race and by place, where we know there have been significant disparities where the data is being reported by race. But nevertheless, I mean, it's been a huge effort by so many different people to try to fill this void, to report data. There's so many different databases now. There's like the COVID-19 tracking project. There's the Johns Hopkins database. The CDC has their database, although it's not quite as as nice or accessible or helpful or comprehensive as some of those other databases. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge issue. And and any, any crisis that affects people, that affects human life, I believe should be approached with the same rigor where we ought to be able to collect the data on what is happening, and we ought to be data driven in our decision making because the scale and the seriousness of these crises demands it. Are you? I've been reading a lot. You know, these articles pop up in my sort of curated news feeds a lot recently, which is especially with the contact tracing. There is a concern and a, a bringing up of the the fact that tracking information is great when you're trying to stop a pandemic. On the other hand, that tracking information can be used for, for ill, for evil, and how much information do we want to give the government about our, our comings and goings? And I'm curious your thoughts on the concern, the constant concern about government oversight, government surveillance versus people's needs for, for, for safety and security. 
So it's a great question. You know, I think there are, so what we have seen in the space that, that we work in, which is around police violence and racial justice, one of the things that we have experienced is this proliferation of various different surveillance technologies used in policing and by, you know, the federal government, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, et cetera, to track people, to identify people, to round people up, to deport people, to do all these things that can cause harm. And, you know, it is something where there's not a I think, you know, a lot of us have been focused on how do we stop the government from either getting access to this data or using the data for harm. So how are we protecting folks there, folks who are undocumented from being exposed to immigration raids and having all of their data of that, you know, if, if they're applying for something that they're eligible for, if they are participating in society, sending kids to school, like that data doesn't then get weaponized to round people up and separate families. Or even in places like Baltimore, where now, the city through funded through a private foundation, right? The city didn't even appropriate funds for this, or there was no democratic process for this, but the city just decided to surveil the entire city of Baltimore with a surveillance plane. So now there is a surveillance plane flying over Baltimore all the time that has super high quality imaging that can essentially take a picture of everybody in real time and track the movements of every single person in the city. Of course, the when you look at the flight path of the plane, it's focused on black and brown neighborhoods. Um, but they're essentially tracking everything that happens. If any, if there is a reported crime, they track the person, where they went, where they ended up. So it's this basically everything that happens in the city is now being recorded, videotaped, and used for policing purposes in a completely unaccountable way. The city is not even like it's funded through a private foundation. There's no oversight or accountability for this process. Um, so it's incredibly harmful and dangerous. At the same time, the question, there are two questions that we ask. One, how do we stop this from proliferating further and being used for harm. And secondly, as this technology in many cases is already being used, how do we then leverage some of these technologies to actually start holding the police accountable or holding the institutions that are causing the harm accountable? So this is sort of like the, the interplay, the balance that, that you have to have when you are sort of in an arms race. It's like, like when they invented airplanes, right? Uh, you know, in the early 1900s, they invented airplanes. And then soon you had air forces. So you had various different nations that had air forces and they could fly much faster than ground troops and they could drop bombs on people from above. And if you didn't have an air force at that point as a nation, whether or not you believe that it was it, that you should have planes or you should you know, invest in this, if you didn't have an air force, you were going to lose. And so at some point you had to have an air force. You had to figure out how to use this technology uh, to keep up in the arms race, to not get defeated, to not get destroyed. Same thing with the nuclear arms race, right? It's the same sort of thing where I don't think we can just avoid leveraging these technologies at all because they're still going to be used against us. And so the question is like, okay, well, if they're collecting all of that video, what are the policies around who gets access to the video? Can the community oversight agencies get access to the video and use it to hold the police accountable? In Baltimore, they said no. They said actually by policy, the, poli the, the data in the video can only be used uh, for law enforcement purposes and can't be used to actually police the police. So in that case, it's a question of policies. If these things are being constructed, how are they being constructed and how are you making sure uh, that these videos, that this evidence is actually going to be used to hold the police and those institutions accountable rather than being used against the most marginalized communities? So that's like a different question, but is, a, is an essential question to figure out because uh, in many cases, these technologies are already being used and, the, and, and we have to figure out how they can be restructured and repurposed to be used for good. Well, in, 
in your answer there, you kind of referenced a couple of the policy recommendations from Campaign Zero, you know, sort of indirectly with the the filming of the police. I know a lot of police agencies have adopted body cams, but the other one was kind of a sort of a big controversial issue here in Tulsa not that long ago, and that was the idea of community oversight. The mayor here actually tried to institute an Office of Independent Monitor, which is something I think was working really well in Denver, maybe in a couple other cities. And it was just interesting to see the kind of pushback that came from it, and not just from you know who you might see as the usual suspects, the Fraternal Order of Police and some others, but from from some groups that normally seem open to having some type of uh, review of police practices and seem to generally be for social justice. So I'm I'm kind of curious from from your perspective what you've seen when you when they're when municipalities try to institute these civil oversight groups, the kind of pushback and why people seem to be so afraid of them. Yeah, so I mean it depends city by city and you know civilian oversight doesn't look the same in every city. So in some places you have a monitor structure which means that the police basically investigate themselves, they continue to be in charge of actually like actually investigating reported misconduct, investigating use of force cases, and figuring out whether or not misconduct was committed and whether officers should be disciplined. And then the police continues to have power over who impl- over implementing that discipline. The monitor then plays a role of sort of being this third party observer of the process, making sure that those investigations happen thoroughly, that nothing is sort of left out of the investigations, that cases aren't ignored, uh, that ultimately this was a complete and thorough and you know effective investigation and process. In some places, you actually have much more powerful oversight, which conducts the investigations themselves, which has the power to discipline the police as a consequence, as a result of their findings. So you have places like San Francisco and Oakland that have those structures, oversight structures, that have all of those powers. And that is a very different model than than I think what most, most cities have. And so part of it is like figuring out what type of model makes the most sense for for from what we've seen across the country, it's very hard to sort of evaluate community oversight models because they are so different, because there are only like two or three cases in the entire country that actually have a civilian oversight model that can enforce its recommendations for discipline. And I think ultimately that is what we're hoping for, is that there will be agencies that are community-led, particularly by people who are most impacted by police violence, that actually have the power to hold police accountable rather than just issue recommendations that often go unfollowed. And so so that's what that's what we've been pushing for. I think that that's probably different from what was proposed in Tulsa. That is different than what for, for than like the oversight models and, and monitor model that that's been adopted in places in Colorado like Denver. But I think ultimately what we are hoping for is that you will have a structure that takes the function of policing the police outside of the police department, puts it in an agency that communities trust, that is representing the communities most impacted by these issues, uh, and that has real power to 
hold the police accountable in these cases. So there are a lot of aspects of this that are sort of in the weeds that are more technocratic, but matter a great deal. So one aspect of that is this idea of who actually has the final authority to decide whether or not a police officer is disciplined for misconduct. And it's often not who you'd think. So it's not the police chief in Tulsa. It is not the community oversight agency. Do you know who it is who has the final authority to uh, decide whether a police officer ends up being disciplined or fired? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So the final, the final authority is an arbitrator. So an arbitrator is a lawyer who is selected by the police union and by the city. So they both have to agree on who this lawyer is going to be that has the power to hear all disciplinary appeals in places like Tulsa and across the country. So this is fascinating because when police officers are disciplined, in most cities, there's some type of appeal process. So they can appeal if they think they were unfairly punished. And the, the people who hear those appeals have absolutely no accountability whatsoever for their decision making. So it's not the mayor, it's not the community oversight board, it is this arbitrator that's selected by the police union and the city that hears the entire case Uh, and has the full authority to reverse a disciplinary decision to put an officer who's been fired for misconduct, who's been fired for shooting an an unarmed person, for any of these things, to put that officer back on the force. And the way that they do this is by looking at all previous cases where similar, similarly egregious misconduct occurred. And And if they can find that an officer in one of those cases got lesser discipline than the officer in this case, then they can completely reverse the discipline. And that, of course, as you can imagine, in an issue like policing, of course, there'll be a case where an officer wasn't Mm -hmm. disciplined for committing misconduct because that's the norm. So it's very easy for this person, this lawyer who has, you know, who can't be voted out of office, you know, who is not an elected representative, who most people don't know about or don't know the name of. Nobody's heard about this person. This person has the full authority over disciplinary appeals in the city. So, so again, like this is sort of the behind the scenes structure and system that creates a lot of problems. Problems and allows police violence to continue. And just to give you a sense of how widespread and, and damaging the system is, in places that have arbitrators, like for example in San Antonio, 70% of all officers who are fired for misconduct are reinstated fully hmm. plus back pay because of the decision of the arbitrator. Wow. In DC, it's about 50% of all cases. In Philadelphia, it's about 60% of all cases. So this is like a huge, huge issue. Yeah. This is like, you know, almost half of all cases where police do actually get held accountable. It gets reversed because of this one provision that happens to be in the city's police union contract. So if you want to change this in Tulsa, you have to change the language of the police union contract when it's up for renegotiation. And this is like all behind the scenes stuff that like most people wouldn't think about. But this is actually like even if you create the most powerful civilian oversight structure in the world in Tulsa, at the end of the day, those decisions made by that structure could be completely overturned by this one line in the police union contract if that's not changed. That that is fascinating because you're right. That's not something I think that most people think about. You know, when they're thinking of combating police violence, they think about things like civilian oversight or body cams or, you know, having crisis de-escalation training and mental health training, which are all very valuable and helpful things. But at the end of the day, without true accountability, you'll never see true change in anything. You know, not just this issue, but in any issue without true accountability, you never see real change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I think part of this work is really helping to unpack the system and how it works. Because I think the police and the police unions in particular, it's not 
it's not the police chiefs usually. One of the things that you learn in, in this work is that it's the police unions have such an outsized role and power in structuring the way in which policing happens in this country. And in many cases, when, you know, if, if, there are a whole lot of police chiefs that will agree with me that, you know, their decision to fire an officer, if they think an officer should be fired, that that officer should be fired. Like they're the employer. They should have the power to remove officers they don't believe should be on the force. Now, we might disagree on which officers those are and how many officers should be removed. But nevertheless, I mean, in the decisions that they do make, they're still being overturned by arbitrators. So you can imagine as a police chief, you are going to be very reluctant to fire an officer because you know they're just going to get their job back and it's going to undermine your own authority. And so, so, like, they want to change those things too. But it's difficult because it's written into contracts that are very difficult to change. So, in many cases, in these police union contracts, if no agreement is reached between the city and the police union on a new contract, the old contract remains in effect indefinitely. So, like, if the police union doesn't want to change this line, they don't have to because they'll just sit on it. They won't accept any new contract language. Any They won't accept a removal of this line. And so the existing contract with the line in it remains in effect indefinitely. So they've sort of already rigged the game so heavily that in many cases, even cities alone can't take on this problem. It takes state legislation to change what can or can't be in those contracts. So, so it's a really difficult and sort of multifaceted issue. And part of this is using the data to unpeel the different layers of it to figure out what are the key structural and systemic barriers to actually getting to a place where, where police accountability is a reality. And then how do we systematically remove those barriers? Well, Sam, I want to thank you for you know taking time to talk to uh, Chris and I today. I wanted you to have a chance to sort of preview your talk this Wednesday, the 27th at 6pm, which is free and open to the public as sort of the keynote spe speech for you know this year's uh, symposium. Why should people put it on their calendars to come and virtually listen to you talk? My talk will be focused on how to use, how to collect, analyze, and use data as a tool for reconciliation, as a tool for addressing fundamental issues of equity and justice in America with a focus on police violence and criminal justice. And so, you know, I encourage anybody who can to attend this talk. It's really going to be carrying on or building on the themes from this conversation that we just had to better present like, what does the national landscape uh, for this issue look like? How widespread is this issue? Where is it? Where where does this where does police violence concentrate in society? Who's most impacted by it? And then what does the data tell us in terms of how do we get past how do we get past uh, these inequities and injustices and get to a place uh, where we can actually uh, achieve more equitable outcomes, eliminate racial disparities and and save lives that are being taken by police violence. So that's like the goal here. And, and I think in many cases it is, how do we use data to sort of, in many ways, you know, not to be cliche, but to de-escalate the conversation and move it past sort of a, a place where you have two different sides who are yelling at each other, who are fighting each other, but are, are not able to get to a place where we can talk about solutions to instead just, just get past all of that using the data, um, depict the facts as they are, uh, and then have a conversation about what to do with the facts as they are, what works and what has worked in other jurisdictions, what has actually been effective, and then how do we scale that into and across the country. So how can people get connected with you or Campaign Zero or any of the other organizations you work with if, if they're inspired by this and your talk on Wednesday? 
So my email is sam at thisisthemovement.org. Uh, feel free to reach out to me. One of the things that we do, so, so all this data work that, that I've talked about, that has been made possible by volunteers and data scientists and students and activists from across the country who have reached out to get involved in this work, who have helped with the data collection, who have found uh, data and policy documents for their own cities and plugged that into our database so that we could then do an analysis of these issues across the country. And so definitely reach out. We will find a place for you in this work um, where you can be impactful. And if you're interested in learning more about the platforms that we built, um, you know, Campaign Zero is our advocacy and policy solutions platform. That's at joincampaignzero.org. Go there, uh, check out some of the solutions, check out the data. There are tools there for how you can contact your elected officials and get involved in advocating for solutions. But ultimately, it'll take all of us to win. And we want to create a, a pathway and a space in this work for everybody. And so uh, our doors are open. Open and we want to work with you to create change. Well, before before we let you go, we normally, again, when we were allowed to record in person, people would come to my office, which is also my home nerd cave, and we would normally ask them to, you know, look around the room and find a sort of nerd item that calls to them or that they want to know more about. During these remote interviews, what we've been asking people is, what is what is your sort of pop culture comfort food? What is, are you currently binging something? Are you currently rewatching something you love? Like how are you spending your time when you're not trying to make the world a better place? That is a great question. Food. <laughs> <laughs> so really food. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm in New York city. The whole city has been shut down for, I don't even know. I don't know what day we're on. It's like space log day 6,000, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but, but food, you know, being able to, to try different types of cuisine, to try different foods, to cook things. Yeah, I'm not a great cook. My partner, Ariel, is an incredible cook. She uh, cooks all kinds of amazing foods that we eat all the time. So just really being able to dive deeper into like cuisine and, and like, as a way to sort of escape and travel and do all, all of the things that are very difficult in this moment. So that's one of my, my escapes. Do you have like a fa fancy cooking tool that you've purchased recently? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. No, nothing purchased recently. We do have like a caldero, which is like an incredible pot for cooking rice. And it just Ooh. always ends up like delicious with like the pegao, which is like the, what do you call it? The the crispy bottom, crispy bottom. of the pot yeah. rice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like really good at making that. That is like one tool I would recommend if you can get one of those pots, get it. All right. Yeah. I always think that's an interesting kind of a, I think a, a cultural divide because there's a group of people when they make rice that think it's ruined if it's get that little crispy, almost burnt bottom. But then I think there's the other people who I'll call the correct people who yeah. <laughs> think that that's the way rice should be. You, you get that little extra almost caramelization to that. Sorry, I'm getting way too into the food right yes, now. Yes, all of that. Yeah, we, we could go into this. I mean, for sure. Um, and it's like a, it's a, it's a balance, you know, because you don't want it burnt. Like you don't want it to taste sort of like popcorn or mm -hmm. like rice. What is it like rice cakes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But but like right there at the at the margin where you're like almost it's not burnt, but it's crispy mm -hmm. and it still tastes delicious like regular rice. Like that is yes, that is heaven. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny that considering in a discussion about uh you know uh, police violence and murder and injustice the the hottest take would be on rice so <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's self-care you gotta yeah. find ways of <laughs> of uh finding joy in a world that is is tough yeah um, sure. so here we are well sam thank you so yes, much and uh, we will make sure this episode is going to be turned around very quickly so that people can listen to it before your talk on wednesday and we will put all the information that they need for both your multiple organizations and the symposium in our show notes 
And I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Sam. Remember, if you are interested in attending the John Hope Franklin Center for Reconciliation National Virtual Symposium, you can check out their website at jhfnationalsymposium.org. It's also in our show notes. If you want to read more about Sam's work with We the Protesters, you can go to www.wetheprotesters.org. And of course, please subscribe to both Pod for Good and Sam's podcast, Pod Save the People, anywhere podcasts can be found. And of course, always remember, wear a mask and get it done, Tulsa. Tulsa.